Real Presence Live. That which is beautiful will manifest itself in truth and in goodness. Local. The challenges that we're facing in our generation, we just need the gospel. I mean, every every culture, every generation just needs to know how the gospel applies. Engaging. We don't bring any life at all to the church. The church is, is the life. It gives us the life. Live. The reality is, He is all things beautiful, capital B. And so anything that is authentically beautiful draws us, even if we don't realize it, to God. Well, good morning, listeners. Uh, we have a very special episode for you on Real Presence Live this morning, and I have three reasons why it's very special, and I will go in order of importance. Number one, uh, it is the Easter season and an Easter octave, so alleluia, Jesus Christ is risen, uh, and it's uh, just the best season of the whole year. Uh, number two, we are broadcasting live on location at Crux Coffee inside St. Paul's Newman Center in Fargo, North Dakota. And three, last but not least, is uh, we have two uh, very special guest hosts, myself and uh, Matt O'Reilly. My name is Nathan Carr. I'm the director of campus ministry at St. Paul's Newman Center. And uh, my co-host today is Matt O'Reilly, our director yep. of communications. So, Matt, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. Yeah, it's great to be on. Yeah. Oh, and, oh, we and got a guest here. Yeah, we, we have a, a very special guest joining us in this first segment today, uh, Edward Habsburg, um, who is the ambassador to the Vatican and the Holy See and the Knights of Malta from Hungary. Uh, and he's also a, a member of the Habsburg royal family. Uh, Edward, are, are you with us all right? I think I am. Good morning yeah. from Rome. Good morning, good morning. So you're in Rome right now. What time of day is it in Rome? It is uh, 4 in the afternoon, and it's a nice warm day. Wonderful. As it is nearly always in Rome. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I would say today's a nice day in Fargo, North Dakota. We still have a lot of snow on the ground, believe it or not, but it is at least uh, <laughs> melting. So we're very optimistic here. So, yeah. Well, good morning. Well, thanks for joining us, Edward. Now, uh, my first question for you um, is that you are actually an archduke, correct? Well, yes. Uh, if this was a monarchy... And uh, my title would be Archduke. Wonderful. Neither wonderful. Austria nor your United States are um, are a monarchy currently. Sure, but that would be the historic title of all the Habsburg. Yes. Right. Right. So, what would be the what would be the proper um, you know uh, title or or uh, greeting for an Archduke? Uh, you know, over here in America, you know, we don't have the the nice royal lineage and the great history. So, I have to profess a little bit of ignorance on uh, proper etiquette and titles. That's absolutely okay. Now, usually, if you if you if you meet an archduke, you would probably have to call him Imperial Highness. Imperial but, Highness. Uh, I'm not going to insist on that in our. <laughs> <conversation>. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. So, where where would uh, where would an archduke fall in the hierarchy? Now, that's a very nice and interesting history in itself, which you can also read in my book, because it's a title that we only have in our family. It's sort of a unique Habsburg title, and. Uh, we, I don't want to say invented it, but we found it in the 14th, 15, 15th century and discovered that we had the right to bear this title. And then it was only ours. It's not like an, uh, an archduke is higher than a duke because there's an arch in front of it, like archbishop sure. is probably higher than a bishop, but it's, it's an entirely and totally Habsburg title that only exists in our family. So it's difficult, it's difficult to compare. Every single male or female Habsburg is either an archduke or archduchess. But wow. as I said, nobody outside of the family has this title, so I wouldn't be able to compare it to anything. Sure, sure. 
Well, so you mentioned your book that you have coming out. Maybe we could dive right into that topic. So um, it's, it's entitled The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times. So maybe tell us a little bit about it. Um, and then, uh, you know, what, what made you decide to write it? What inspired you to write this book? Well, it's, um, it's um, the most important part. It's not long. It's, um, it's a nice book to read with lots of stories inside. My first aim was, of course, to get people to know the Habsburg family and its history, its long 800-year history. But I thought I, I, don't, I won't just write a, a history of the Habsburgs. That's boring. So what I tried to find out was um, what are the seven principles that the Habsburgs always followed over those 800 years. Um, and then I said, well, these seven principles or rules, as I call them, seven rules for turbulent times, um, may have some importance today, and I proposed them to the reader. Um, Michael Knowles, when he reviewed my book, he said it's, um, it is a self-help book, so it's a Habsburg self-help book with seven rules to make your life better, to make society better, and, uh, and to make politics better. Great, great. Yeah, so, I mean, what, what are the seven rules that maybe go through uh, briefly each of those rules, and, you know, how do we apply them maybe to today, you know, because I would say the world is, um, yeah, we always think maybe our, our unique historical moment is, is greater than any other, but, but there's definitely some challenges, both, you know, in, in locales, but also worldwide. Uh, what are the seven rules, and how can we apply them then to today? Well, the first one is pretty easy to apply. It's called get married and have lots of children. Um, <laughs> Check. All right. <laughs> Good rule. I, I, I got married and had six children, and it was the greatest decision I made in my life. And most Habsburgs had lots of children. Um, they married quite a few of them off. So Habsburg and marriage is sort of a synonym, if you want to. So the first rule is get married and have lots of children. Second is be Catholic and practice your faith. Now, at the beginning of that chapter, I explained that I don't necessarily mean Catholic because there are many readers of this book who are not Catholic. But practice your faith, I think, is a very, very good rule. In the case of the Habsburgs, of course, they were always, they were always Catholic. And, uh, and that was sort of, this is marriage and being Catholic are the, the two main shining um, elements of, 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 of the Habsburg history. The third one is believe in the empire and in subsidiarity. And in that chapter, I explained that the empire usually gets a bad rap. That is because America is built on the idea that you have to fight tyrants. And I say I blame Star Wars because um, <laughs> our, idea, our idea of the empire is an evil old cackling master sitting somewhere and terrorizing right. whole galaxies with uh, soldiers, while in reality the empire under the Habsburg was something very different. The emperor ruled over a very complex mixture of different languages, different countries, different dukedoms, this, this room. And all of that had to be balanced, and there was, no, there was no ruling like in Star Wars. And subsidiarity is a very important word. I encouraged the readers of this book to try to memorize this word, subsidiarity, which is the respect for the lower level, like um, that you don't take the federal level above the local level that the right. state in America has, has power, etc. All of that was very important in the Habsburg monarchy. Then I have my fourth point is stand for law and justice and your subject, and I try to prove that most Habsburgs did just that, and that we sometimes in our enthusiasm to fight kings and tyrannies forget that the king in theory 
should be a just and good king and, right. and work for that. The Habsburgs did. Then know who you are and live accordingly. This is uh, about caring for tradition, caring for your roots, caring where you come from. The Habsburgs were very, very big on that. Um, then I have, I have one that not everybody can, can, can live that way, which is be brave in a battle or have a great general. Um, because I'm, I'm trying to show that while the Habsburgs usually solve problems by marriage, by diplomacy, and by, by getting along with neighbors, sometimes they had to go on the battlefield. And uh, I give a few examples for that. But that also applies to every single one of us. We are in situations where we have to be courageous. And the seventh is perhaps the most important. I, I say in, in my chapter, I put it put in the first place, it's called Die Well. And, uh, and I say that the Habsburgs were famous for having prepared for death, have, living their death as a Christian should, and, um, and as a Catholic should, and, um, and every one of us should do this and prepare for that. And I do this especially by describing the famous, the famous knocking ritual. I don't know whether you've ever heard of that. I have not. No, maybe explain that. But if that. you go on YouTube, and, um, and you, you Google Habsburg ritual or Habsburg knocking ritual, you will find the video of um, the, the, the two last filmed Habsburg knocking rituals. Now, half of the world has watched um, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. Many of us have. And in the end, there, is this, there was a moment when they slowly lowered her coffin into the, into the crypt of the church. And, um, and while the coffin was lowered, they read her titles, all her titles. She had many titles, right. which is very touching. But I had to think of the Habsburg knocking ritual. Hello? Yep, you're still with us. Yep, keep going. Thank you. So uh, I had to think of the Habsburg knocking ritual, which was quite different, because I, I, I experienced it twice with, uh, when the last Empress of Austria was buried um, in 1889. It was extremely moving. This whole crowd with the coffin arrived at the... At the, at, the, at the door of the, of the, that goes down to the crypt, to the Habsburg crypt in Vienna, which is the Kapuzinergruft. And the, the master of ceremony knocks three times on the door. And the voice of the Capuchin friar from inside says, Who is there? And then they read out, um, uh, Zita, Empress of Austria, Queen of Croatia, Hungary, Croatia, Bohemia, Moja, etc. Yeah. And the voice answers, We don't know her. And then he, he, he knocks again. And they say, who is there? Then they read out all her achievements, all the things she has done in her life. And the voice again says, uh, we don't know her. And then they knock a third time, and then he says, who goes there? And the answer is, Peter, a poor sinner. And then the door opens, and the coffin can be brought inside. And that, in one um, ritual, exemplifies what the Habsburgs thought about dying. And we live in a time where death is either violent, visible, or somewhere far away in hospitals, right. and we as Christians should should prepare for our death because it, it is also a decisive moment for for how we're going to spend eternity. And the Habsburgs were they're terribly aware of their shortcomings, their sinfulness, their failures, and they li they try to live accordingly. So those are the seven rules that I propose for everybody. And you can tell that um, you don't have to be an emperor to live these rules. 
Right, right. Well, there's there's so much that I want to kind of spring off of each of these because there's so much distilled wisdom, Edward, in each one of these points, um, and especially the one that lasts, that most important one, number seven, die well. I had a uh, this past weekend on Saturday a friend uh, pass away after a three-year battle of cancer, and the story that I received uh, from his bedside was just chilling as far as uh, he was surrounded, great Catholic man, husband, uh, father of five children, and uh, he was surrounded of course by many loved ones but in the room next to him was a woman that was dying that that was an acquaintance of many of those same people but uh, had not been baptized uh, did not know Jesus and had no faith and was terrified on her deathbed but because of the faithfulness of this man uh, the priest that was sitting with him popped over to that room and uh, just made a pastoral visit and visited with her and by the end of that conversation she had agreed to be baptized and confirmed oh. and you could just see the peace uh, oh. descend upon her and and I think when you die well to your point there's just miracles can happen souls can be yeah. saved because it's such a powerful witness because yeah. of the finality of death so um, I, I just really appreciate that number seven because it's uh, I think <laughs> just so powerful to die let, well let me tell you let me tell you another story about that um you know, we live in a time where people, you sometimes get the impression when you go to funerals that um, whenever the priest speaks about the deceased, he says he's with, with God now. As somebody once said, you get the impression the only thing to get to heaven is you have to die. And um, it's not that easy. It's not that easy. Right. It has to do with an entire life with God. And, um, and, and the Habsburgs, as I told you, were very aware of that. It was their first priority. In most cases, there were a few very sad exceptions that I write about in my book. But most of them were, and one story that was very touching was told by um, uh, Emperor uh, Franz Stefan of Lothringen, the husband of Maria Theresia. We are here in the, in the 1740s, in the 18th century. And smallpox came to the castle of the Habsburgs in Vienna. Mm. And when smallpox came, you either died or you were scarred for life and you lost your beauty right. as, as a girl. And, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and this Franz Stefan writes, a letter to one of his friends and says, our daughter got smallpox um, a few days ago, and her first reaction when she found out she had smallpox was to call for a priest and to make a life confession. Um, and she died three days later. Yeah. And um, so your priorities, even when you're 10 years old, were very clear. Yeah. Well, Edward, we're coming up on a break, so we'll definitely have to continue this conversation after on the other side of the break. But uh, I love these seven rules. There's so much wisdom, as I said before, in each one of these. Um, and so when we get back, we'll, we'll maybe talk a little bit about where our listeners can find this book and, and get a hold of it so they can read for themselves. Um, and then uh, dig a little more into your family history. So if you're able to stay with us for the other side of the break, uh, we'll continue to uh, unpack this conversation. Uh, this is Real Presence live and your guest co-host today are myself Nathan Carr and Matt O'Reilly and we'll be back with you in just a moment stay with us there's more real presence live to come on the real presence radio network did you know you can listen to the RPR network when you're on the go just search for Real Presence Radio in your app store. Listen live to any station across the network at any time, so you can stay connected to your local community from wherever you are. Plus, if you miss a program, the Real Presence Radio app is your one-stop shop for local and national podcasts. 
including our signature show, Real Presence Live, the Real Presence radio app, with you every step of your faith journey. Download it today and see what you've been missing. What if you could earn a degree that offers the best of both worlds, an MBA and a master's degree in philosophy? The University of Mary offers one degree that combines world-class business training with a careful study of life's deepest questions through their combined MBA, MA, and philosophy program. By earning one degree in both philosophy and business online, you will rigorously engage the big ideas needed to address professional challenges. Visit catholicprofessional.life. This is Lavinia Spirito for Catholic with Bible Study. The sacraments of matrimony and holy orders are sacraments of service, which means they are directed towards the salvation of others. Through holy orders, a priest gives himself to the church through service to the faithful. Through marriage, the spouses give themselves to one another in service and love. Popular thought tells us marriage is for emotional or romantic fulfillment alone, but the Church, in her wisdom, calls us to something much greater, a communion of life and love. This holds true also for the sacrament of holy orders. A priest does not become a priest for personal fulfillment. He is consecrated for the sanctification of the body of Christ. The church is fortified and consecrated through the sacraments of service. Whatever your vocation, how can you deepen the way you serve those around you today? Catholic Way Bible Study. Peace, power, purpose. Find out more at cwbs.org. You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. All right, welcome back to Real Presence Live. Uh, Like we said, we got uh, myself, Matt O'Reilly, and Nathan Carr from St. Paul's Newman Center hosting at uh, Crux Coffee, the coffee shop here in in the Newman Center. And we got um, Edward Hapsburg on, who's talking about his seven rules of... for Turbulent Times, his new book that um, he has out. Um, but yeah, we talked a little bit about your uh, seven rules you have here, uh, Edward. Um, but yeah, we wanted to ask you, um, so we have a crisis of good governance. Uh, is there a path forward and how do we inspire a new generation of leaders in, in this time that we're in now? Yes. Well, that is one of the big topics of my book. Um, when, um, when President Roosevelt uh, visited Emperor Franz Joseph of Austria, um, in the in the 20th century, and they had a 38-minute conversation in the Hofburg in Vienna, and Roosevelt, you know, tried you know to poke the emperor a bit with a provocative question. So at the end of the conversation, he said, "Now, now that we have parliament and elections and democracy and politicians, what do we need an emperor for? <laughs> What's your job?" <laughs> and Franz Josef said, "My job is to protect my people from their politicians." And sometimes, just sometimes, I ask uh, myself, who protects us from our politicians nowadays? Right. And um, the Habsburgs are a great example for, um, for people, political leaders, who were trained from their childhood to serve. Uh, I don't want to romanticize this too much, but most of them really did. You grow up knowing your country, you watch your father, the emperor, handle problems, you get to know all the important players, and you know that you cannot run away once you take over, the, the, you're, you're the ruler of the country. You will have to deal with it. You cannot sort of say, okay, that's it. I'm now going to go into business, earn lots of money, and have a nice 
rest of my life. Right. You're in it for life, and your and your son or daughter will have to live with the consequences of what you do. So you weigh in really serious before you do something. You, if you're Catholic like the Habsburgs were, you know that you will have to render one day report to God at, at the last judgment. That is why I believe that it's not uh, a negative thing to have politicians have that have a faith. Right. Because I, 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 I know what I can hold them accountable to. And I know that if, if I know that I have to render, render one day justice to, to God, it will keep me perhaps from, from cheating, that will keep me from being corrupt. So all of that you, you can find in the Habsburgs. This is a strong plaidoyer for not seeing monarchy so negative. Right. Um, but it is also a strong question to us today, what do we expect from our politicians? Um, another example that I, I think my favorite example in this book uh, is, um, you know, the, the last Habsburg emperor, he was called um, Emperor Karl, Blessed Charles, the only blessed in our family um, by the Catholic Church. And he only ruled for one and a half years in the last two years of the First World War, nearly totally overshadowed by the uh, nearly 70-year reign of uh, Franz Joseph, mm -hmm. famous one with the bushy beard. Right, right. And, um, and he only ruled for one and a half years. He was a giant of faith. He was deeply devout with his wife. They loved each other. They raised their children as Christians. He died in, ex he died in exile, and he died quite miserably from a lung disease, very painful, over wow. weeks um, in Madeira. And he, beforehand, had offered God his, his life so that his people could be in peace. He offered up his life and every day of his suffering for his people who had sent him into exile. Now I wonder whether we have politicians who would be ready today to give their life for their people. Yeah. And so this is, you know, this is, this is something that I try to bring out. We, we, we have lost the confidence that we have honest men who, who lead our countries. We should, we should have that again, because it's possible. But you, you need really strong, an, a strong ethical bar to measure against. Yeah, and that's what my book tries. Yeah. yeah, I couldn't agree more with you on that. And, and the lack of accountability sometimes to the elected leaders that we have, that uh, even though they're elected, it does seem that there is, um, you know, something of... Uh, a, a, you know, they know how to engineer these elections in such a way to cater public opinion one way or the other. And, uh, and there's not a lot of strong accountability because of the tie-in of large corporations and things like that into the political realm. So having that accountability to God, I think, is the thing that makes us most honest and sees things yes. that, wait a second, my, my actions do have considerable consequences. And regardless if I see it on this side of things, uh, when I stand face-to-face -face with the Almighty God, then, then I'm going to have to give an account for my life and the consequences for the things. And look, uh, the, the leaders, there's greater consequences for more people for the decisions that they make. So it's, uh, it's a very grave responsibility that they have. And um, I, I would have to agree. I don't think that we have, have that same sense of duty and justice and responsibility towards the people that we've, we've maybe had in uh, previous generations and centuries. I think that America, I mean, looking over from Europe, I, I totally see all the points that you, that you made now especially the ones that decisions seem to be made on such high levels that they are not under democratic accountability right. anymore. And um, that's why the, the topic of subsidiarity that I speak about 
So in my chapter three about the empire is important, the respect for the lower level, the respect for the local level. Um, that's why the United States still are, from the, from the way they are built, a place of hope. Because you are really United States. You are states that still right. have the right to do certain things that the, the federal level cannot take away from you. Um, in Europe, we see a strong tendency towards centralization in Europe. And whenever the Habsburgs try to centralize their diverse countries, it always went wrong. Mm -hmm. um, Emperor Charles V in the 16th century wrote to his son, Philip II, and said, um, you rule over different countries with different languages and different mores, different laws, different rights. You have to respect all those different elements or you will be in huge trouble. You cannot, you know, govern everything from a central point in one language. It doesn't work. And that is, I think, the answer. The answer to all the trouble we have right now is, um, is, is respecting the lower level and respecting the freedom and accountable politicians. Yeah, so how do we recover that, that notion of subsidiary, that, that, that principle where we have more local governance when, when things are so very you know, centralized and increasingly more so? Uh, any thoughts or, or ways that we can recover that in our governing structures and instill that sense of responsibility into our leaders? Know who you are, chapter five of my book. Know your roots, know where America comes from. You have an incredibly strong founding myth and um, if you read um, if you read the democracy in america by tocqueville you feel something of that um, you know elect politicians that stand for these values and uh, that that is one path to make these things better yeah wonderful yeah well uh you mentioned your uh your ancestor um blessed carl of austria i wondered if you could go into just a little more of his history and uh just a little bit about, about more uh, more about him and his holy life that he lived you know, I, I gave a talk about him last year in October in Texas. And in, in that conference hall, there were 700 people, nearly all of them young. Lots of children, families with lots of children. Um, Blessed Carl, who in the eyes of the world and of big historians may be seen as a loser uh, because he lost the empire, he lost the war, and he died miserable in, in, in exile. So this is a loser, right? He touches hearts like nobody else does. He's a deeply devout family father of eight children with a deeply devout wife whose um, beatification process has also begun now. And um, we have a WhatsApp group in the Habsburg family. Um, we, we all meet there, and not all of us, but many. And I made a poll once with young Habsburg, said, what's your favorite Habsburg? And I, as I'm doing now on Twitter, if you go on Twitter on my account, you can see that I'm, I'm doing a poll on the favorite Habsburgs, the championship, since a few weeks. Yeah. Great fun. It's great fun. You, you can vote, you know. You can, you can vote for your favorite Habsburgs. So I did the same thing with the young ones on, on, on WhatsApp. And they all said, blessed Carl. And, and I said, why? And they said, because he did uh, his, his vocation as a Christian, his vocation as a father and family father, and his job, which happened to be emperor, he lived it to the full in responsibility and with all his forces. And I, I think that's a very good answer. And the great thing, again, is you don't have to be emperor to be like this Carol. You just have to live your vocation as a Christian, your vocation as a family father or as a priest or as, as a layperson or whatever. Live it to the full, and your job, even if it's not emperor, Fill it with your faith and with responsibility, and you can be like Blessed Carol. I think that people, people can relate to that, and uh, 
in the States, there is incredible uh, love for this humble, humble giant faith from the early 20th century. Wonderful. And, and that just makes me think that you know, holiness in this context is so attainable by all of us. Um, following what the church teaches about vocation, uh, especially that of marriage, and just simply leaning into that, being generous with the Lord and with children, and, and how much of, of our own call to holiness can flow right through that, despite whatever our, you know, external circumstance God may call each of us to, we at least will have, have sort of that notion that the children we're raising up uh, can be, you know, the giants can be greater than, than us um, and, and go on to do yeah. even greater things. Yes, yes, yes. It's, um, it, you know, sometimes people sound slightly um, worried about the situation of the church, but our job is not to change, to save the church worldwide. Our job is to get us and our children and our wife into heaven. Amen. And that's something you do with everyday work and not with huge, gigantic plans. Yeah, right. no, I couldn't have said that better myself. It's, you know, you, you focus a lot and you kind of want to be this giant giant person who everybody knows, but at the end of the day, it's where you put yourself during the day and what you do with the day that you have and the, the people that are around you, like your wife and your kids and um, how you get them to heaven. So, yeah. yeah. Well, Edward, thank you so much uh, for being with us this morning. Uh, where can people find your book? Uh, is it available on places like Amazon and uh, Barnes yes, & Noble? Things? Okay, wonderful. You can so. find it everywhere, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Sophia Press homepage. If you want to make them happy, please order from that page if you're in Perfect. the States. That's the best thing. And if you want to meet me, you go on Twitter. You, you, you meet my account. I also react and I also answer if you write to me. There. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, Edward, thank you so much for being with us this morning and your book, The Habsburg Way, Seven Rules for Turbulent Times, published by Sophia Institute Press. Uh, listeners can find it there uh, on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. Um, so thank you so much, Edward, for being with us. On the other side Thanks. of this break, we will be uh, interviewing the pastor of St. Paul's Newman Center, Father James Cheney, who will be telling us the story of uh, the recent capital campaign and the building of our brand new Newman Center and uh, telling us all about that. So please do stay tuned and listen to that. This is Real Presence Live, and I am Nathan, and I'm with Matt, and we are guest hosts today. Thanks so much, and we'll be back with you in just a moment. Live, engaging, and local, this is Real Presence Live, where we bring you positive and uplifting stories and share the great things happening in our local area on the Real Presence Radio Network. 